Hello, dear friend, and welcome. My name is Cynthia Alice Anderson, and I'm the owner and founder of the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. I have been so honored to be able to offer these programs several days a week, and these programs I know are inspiring, they are supporting, and they are uplifting your life's journey. I want to see that continue, and I honor you for being a part of making that happen. So for over five years, we've been able to offer these programs, and we want to continue to be able to offer them. So over the next 90 days, we are raising $9,000, and that's going to get us all the way through the end of the year. So I ask you to consider taking the time to support the channel that supports you. And again, our goal that we're asking you to be a part of is $9,000 in 90 days. And we look forward to hearing from you, friend. We're honored to support your journey. And we always are lifting you in prayer for God's highest and best in your life. Blessings on the journey, dear friend. And I look forward to seeing you very soon. Welcome to Healing Your Family Legacy, here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. Innovative, evidence-based recovery that helps to identify intergenerational trauma, allowing for freedom and embracement of the healing process. Today, episode 36, Brat Life, part two. And now your host, Dr. Donna Bevanley. This is Dr. Donna Bevanley, Healing Your Family Legacy. Welcome back. Um, I'm happy to have Laura and Linda back with me now. Um, last uh, During our last program, they were talking about how growing up in a family where mother always has to be right. I think you described her as a narcissist. That she could cheat. She could lie. She could, you know, make you eat bad leeks, you know, no matter what. Um, and you know, the thing that caught my attention the most was how you're, you're, you like, you're playing a game and she cheats and you all know she cheats and you all see that she cheats. You aren't allowed to do that, but she not only is allowed, but then when I think Laura, you said you called her out on it and then she'd have some kind of a fit and go in her bedroom and have heart palpitations. Then the ambulance would show up and the EMTs would either attend to her and let her stay in bed or off to the hospital. And then after that, your father would come in while she's in bed. Your father would come in and say, okay, you know how she is now. I want you all to go in there and tell her you're sorry. And then you'd have to go in and tell her you're sorry. And then she would either have to... She, you'd have to tell her you were sorry until it was acceptable to her and that she would believe you and let you off the hook. And I'm just thinking, wow, I'm, I'm wondering how that would affect you as a child when you have to always tell the truth and you would either be disciplined or, you know, maybe it didn't matter, but it would impact how you experience people lying to you as an adult. Um, or, you know, it's like you, you said, Linda, that you had great LIDAR. Now you could tell when somebody's lying, but then what? <laughs> what do you do? And how does that affect you in your life? And I would like to know that. So I'd like to start there. 
Um, I, I can start, uh, this is Linda, and um, it's, it's something that I really hate. You know, honesty is, is really, really important to me. So I think because of, of the trauma and the confusion as a child of having to, having to or being made to let our mother get away with all that stuff, was it, it must have been so confusing. So, um, yeah, I, I, I hate dishonesty. And, um, like I said before, I've got Laura and I both have really good LIDAR. So try to lie to me. I'll catch you. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I feel strongly about it. How about you, Laura? Well, this is actually sort of hilarious because, um, for three years during my teaching career, I was a dean. And from the student's perspective, the main thing a dean is good for is something called a dean's excuse. Um, so if, you, if you're a student, you're writing a paper, you didn't finish the paper, uh, you don't go at, at this school, you don't go to the faculty member and say, may I have an extension? You go to the dean and you get a dean's excuse. So I had a parade of people through my office day after day after day seeking dean's excuses. And about 75% of them were lying to me. Oh. Um, and it, it just put me in the most awful position. Because, you know, as you say, what do you do with that information? I would always have to go through the mental, like, okay, is it, is it worth it to have this out? Um, because, you know, on what basis do I say you're lying? It's just me reading you. Um, you know, I don't have any more authority necessarily than the next person. Um, and, you know, another part of me is going, well, if you, you know, was it a good lie? Um, I'm, I'm actually something of a connoisseur of lies. And <laughs> if somebody tells me a really good one, um, I rather admire it because Martha, our mother, was just ham-fisted and crude and childish she wasn't even an elegant liar um so you know when a student came in with a really great story um a, a part of me was half admiring um but in my life beyond that i almost never say anything it just changes how i feel about the person um I, you know, yeah, I, I factor it into other interactions. You know, sometimes I'll give someone more distance than I might otherwise. But I don't, I don't think I trust myself quite as much as Linda does. Um, and it's, it partly goes back to this, this whole confusion over who's right and who's wrong. If you're right when you're wrong, I mean, if you're wrong when you're right, which we were, um, then how much confidence can you ever have um, or 
again, speaking for myself, I very rarely feel confident in the, in the rightness of, of any perception. Um, so, you know, I, I may be like 95% sure you're lying because it's all over your face. Um, and you know, your story is not very credible and, you know, there's other evidence and things like that, but that other 5% will, will always keep me from acting. Um, so, yeah, I, I have acted on it in the past and, you know, I, I let the little stuff slide and, you know, if my roommate tells a lie or something, I just, um, you know, don't sweat the small stuff on that sort of thing. But um, a colleague of mine lied that in a way that did affect the rest of us on the on the team um, in that it got her more work and took work away from the rest of us. And it, I called her out on it and uh, it ended our friendship. So... You know, I don't, I don't always confront people when they're, when they're lying, but sometimes I do. And in that case, uh, it, yeah, it went, I went all the way. Did your father, while this was going on, uh, you know, going back to some of the uh, programs in the past, we're talking about how children need to feel safe in their environment. Um, and if they don't feel safe in their environment, it impacts their emotional and psychological development, among other things. And, you know, you do need at least one parent that is, you know, more interested in the health and well-being and care of the children. Uh, and in this situation, like, was that how did you feel in your family where well is this a safe place for me to be is there anybody you know are there any adults in this in this uh family that can help the children understand uh what's going on and give them hand i mean did you feel like there was anyone that was doing that i didn't um my father to some degree i mean my mother was basically our mother was <clears throat> basically a child. So we had to take care of her. We had to cater to her moods and emotions and take care of her feelings, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and, you know, my father would defend her um, because otherwise he would probably have to pay. But um, so I think he he provided a little bit of balance, but he also mm -hmm. participated in the problem. Sure. Yeah. Did you did that uh impact your ability to feel safe, Linda? Like you know, the kind of safety where kids like, okay, I'm home now. I'm glad. Um, and I mean physically safe. I felt physically safe, but I think uh I probably felt uh not entirely emotionally safe because mm -hmm. we did have to tiptoe around. We did have to take care of our mother who was more of a child than we were allowed to be. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. So maybe a little bit emotionally unsafe. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I don't what think about you, Laura? concept. I mean, that idea wouldn't have occurred to me. I mean, I thought entirely in terms of physical safety. Um, mm-hmm. And I, too, felt physically safe. I mean, my father was safe, as Linda said, in the sense that he wasn't going to do the weird things that Martha did. Um, mm-hmm. And he did keep her in line to a degree. She also, she took a lot of pills. She drank. Um, if he wasn't around, mm. she would do it more and she would get crazier. Um, so, so he was, he enabled her on one hand and he, but he was a set of breaks on the other hand. Mm. Um, but it, it took me 30 years to realize how, emotionally unsafe our family was. I mean, the the children were relatively supportive of one another. Um, I mean, I did things like, I'll admit it, I hanged my sister's Thumbelina doll. Um, I, you know, participated in breaking <laughs> one of her favorite records. Um, I was not perfect. But when I talked to other siblings about the animosity between them, the rivalries, the real hatreds, um, we really didn't have that. We stood up for mm-hmm. one another. You know, it was sort of an, a little bit of an us against them dynamic, even though, yes, there was some of the rolling downhill um, stuff as well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I used to sock my brother John really hard in the arm when I was angry, and then I, he got bigger than me, and I couldn't do that anymore. Stop that. And, um, and David and I did that, too. I, I would mm-hmm. sock him in the arm, and he'd go, that didn't hurt. Then he would sock me in the arm. I'd go, that didn't hurt, and I would, et cetera. It would just go on and on. <laughs> um I I wanted to mention something um that we that we talked about a little bit in the last session and that is uh and this is a, a was a big factor for us in the way that we grew up um we did have a lot of freedom and on my dad's last assignment he was in Vietnam and my mother and the rest of us were in Taiwan um, Laura was in college for part of that, and then she joined us in Taiwan. But my mother didn't have very much control over us. We were all teenagers. Um, you know, my father wasn't there, and you know, she did a fair amount of drinking stuff. So we were we were free range, and had a lot of freedom. But another a factor about that that was huge for us was we were safe. We were in countries, especially Taiwan, where we could go out and, you know, walk around at night at any time, alone or not. It was absolutely safe, which is a wonderful thing. That's still true about Taiwan. Um, And then when I came back for my senior year, another thing that was really difficult about it was that suddenly I had all these uh, restrictions put on me, you know, because my parents were looking out for my safety, which they didn't have to do in Taiwan as much. 
you know, my, my dad would say, okay, well, you can use the car if you take your brother with you. So, of course, I knew that my brother would have his face in an encyclopedia. So that was hopeless. <laughs> <laughs> so did you understand at that time, Linda, why restrictions were put on you? Did you did you understand it? Or did it just feel like, oh, well, this changed and I'll be safe anyway. I mean, that's sometimes that's what kids say. It's like, because they have this feeling that they're just super powered, right? Nothing will happen well, to them. Yeah, my parents never really explained every, anything. It was just either you're moving or now you can't go out as much. Um, and again, I was in 10th and 11th grade in Taiwan where it was just my mother. And um, so we had less discipline just by virtue of the fact that my father was in Vietnam and only came home every six weeks. Um, so it was coming from that degree of freedom to suddenly having restrictions put on me. And I think, I think I was aware of why, but I don't, but not fully. Uh, that must have, you know, I just want to say this, this, if I sound like a therapist, I'm sorry, I am. But, um, you know, being yanked out of a relatively safe and environment where you had good friends and then put into a situation uh, like in Maryland, uh, no offense against Maryland, but you were in the, a senior in high school, which is one of the most important years that kids go through that's when they're really finally making separation from their family and getting ready to go off into the real world and you're yanked out of an environment that's safe and supportive and put into a situation where you are not supported and it's not safe and none of your friends are there i just think that must have been a horrible situation for you and you've said it was but i'm yeah i'm yeah. just thinking of a like an emotional social psychological every way yeah, uh, it it terrible. was really difficult. And if I had known in advance that how hard it would be, I would have begged my parents to let me stay in Taiwan with another family mm -hmm. or something for my senior year. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. The other thing about it, and this is another factor of, of how we grew up, is that I entered a school as a senior where everyone had established their cliques back in fifth grade sure. or whatever. And, you know, um, so there was that. And then one thing about us and a lot of other people who are also brats, military or government, um, they, you, you come and go. Someone new comes to school, you welcome them, you know, you show them around. It was, it wasn't like that at all in my senior year. Mm -hmm. It was just, I was just put into this. I knew one person and I would kind of tag along with her. And what she enjoyed doing was hot rodding around in her SS Chevelle with the hearse four on the floor and hanging out in parking lots. And it was just like, ugh. So <laughs> then halfway through the year, I met someone who uh, became a very good friend. So the second half was mm -hmm. not as bad. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I've heard from both of you is that there was there, you know, and you've said this, you've both said this, there was not, there was no guidance and direction about what was happening in your life. Mm -hmm. And 
And even though, you know, your father would at least come in and validate your reality about your mother's craziness, like, okay, you all know she was cheating, and you all, and I know you know, and you're all right, but, you know, even though that's true, you have to go in and do this charade to keep the peace. When was it ever your turn? And the other thing is that, you know, the, the other thing that, that kind of uh, is, is stark to me, and, you know, I've talked about this in, in, our, in other programs, is that you, even now you talk about, well, if I would have known then, then I would have, you know, done this different, or I would ask for this. Like, if I would have known what it was like, I would have asked to stay with a family in Taiwan. And you know, usually that's what the parents are doing. Okay. If the parents are paying attention, they're saying, gee, you know, we probably shouldn't move her. It's her senior year. She's got these good friends. You know, it's safe here in Taiwan. You know, let's talk to her and see if she wants to stay here. And, you know, with a, with a family that we know and that she knows, and that would probably be the best thing for her. It's like, it was never about what the best thing for no. you guys it was about <laughs> what was best for your mother, what was best for your dad, but what, you know, who was paying attention to what was best for you guys? Sounds like you thought you should. <laughs> and only in retrospect, because you were kids, you wouldn't have known what was best for you then. Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't that aware of. I didn't know what a narcissist was. I wasn't sure what was no. going on. I just knew that she was a liar and that when she drank, she got even weirder and less honest. Um, and then, and as Laura said earlier, she did defend us sometimes. So she, mm -hmm. she was the only one who really confronted her. And, you know, it was tough on her. Well, it was tough on all of you, and and even you know when Laura would, when you would, uh, tried to defend, you're still a kid, so you know even if you're thinking, okay, what's best for my siblings because I love them and care about them and want them to be okay, you're still coming from a position of being a child, right? <laughs> you might think, what's best for us to eat for breakfast? Shall we have sugar pops or shall we have eggs and bacon you know you might want eggs and bacon but you're a kid so i think we'll have the sugar pops right because that's what kids do i mean children no matter how uh no matter how mature people think they are they're still their age you, you can't grow yourself up any faster than you can't you know it's like that's just something we don't have control over well, and I, you know, sounds like Laura, you were like the the uh, the parent that these other kids didn't have, but you were still a kid. Well, I think also a part of it was I had trouble standing up for myself, but I could stand up for someone else. So I think a lot of a lot of my own rage at Martha, you know that I, I had trouble expressing directly because, you know, I like, who am I to have rage at my mother? Um, when there was a younger child there, for me, there was more moral clarity. Um, you know, I could mm -hmm. say, well, yes, she did say this to Linda. She said she could go to the slumber party. 
you know, or, you know, this actually happened, I'm sure of it. And so I can jump in um, and be more assertive than I would be in my own defense. Um, so part of it, part of it was that. Um, well, you're three years older, three and a half years older than her. So you do have three and a half years more maturity. Right. But I have, right. an, Irish so when, yeah. I have an Irish twin, John. So there are mm -hmm. four of us mm -hmm. in five years. Um, mm -hmm. Which, you know, it's weird because I know some narcissists take a lot of pride in being good mothers. But... Mm -hmm. My mother's attitude was that she should receive a lot of admiration for being so wonderful as an artist, a great beauty, an intellectual, um, and, you know, a fabulously charming person in spite of having four children in five years, um, you know, and, and four rambunctious children in five years. You know, we, we were a handful um, and we were kind of proud of that. Yeah. I think that was a part <laughs> of, you know, what, what rebellion we did, which wasn't that much of it, um, was in being boisterous, high spirited. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, children, there, there are five of four of you in five years and so even if your mother wasn't a narcissist and even if she didn't drink too much, that would be what you'd call a handful anyway, <laughs> because she had yeah. four kids well, yeah. <laughs> who are all pretty much the same age. And, and I know because, you know, I was a mother or I am a mother. It's like raising one child is a lot of work. When yeah. you are doing it, when you're paying attention, when you care about what's happening to them, let alone four. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think, you know, I, I say that because by saying, well, you know, we were really a bunch of rambunctious kids. I got that. Um, it's like, well, that's still, that doesn't let her off the hook. And it's like kids who are rambunctious are great. They're usually really smart and they're really talented and capable kids. And, you know, it's an opportunity for parents to raise four kids who can really do a lot of good in the world <laughs> if they get the guidance and direction because they have the brains, they have the energy, they have the, you know, they have what it takes. And when they're trying to survive lies and cheating and trying to figure out, okay, who's who do we, you know, who are we getting today for a mother versus, you know, you know, it's like, oh, well, what are we going to do today? Right. It's like mm -hmm. you're trying to figure out who are we going to get today and then figure out how you're going to manage that. You can see where, you know, in my mind anyway, it's, it's such a it's a waste. I'm, that's a huge judgment. I get that. But it's a waste of what otherwise, you know, could have been an opportunity. You get the four kids who are trying to figure out what what we're gonna how we're gonna manage. Yeah, um, one uh, big factor of of how we grew up is that my mother had help, so we always had uh, 
in Taiwan was called an ama, like a, a maid mm-hmm. or a, a child care maid slash child care, you know, and a, a cook in addition to that. So we had servants. Um, Driver, so my mother, yeah, gardener, mm-hmm. etc. So she, uh, she didn't have to do all, take care of us, do all the, the work. Yeah. She could have just paid attention to the kids and helped you guys. Well, you have. needed her. <laughs> you needed her. And whether you know it or not, you, you wanted to have her attention time because <laughs> kids want that. And when they don't get it, they either just turn into highly, you know, highly rebellious to try and get it that way, or they give up. You yeah, know, it's like, I, okay, well, we're not going to get this, and I just like to be away from her. Yeah. <laughs> and we, then Dad, he's out doing whatever. <laughs> since we weren't um, encouraged in our various uh, skills and talents, it took us a lot longer to become confident a heck of a lot longer because you know we we weren't really allowed to shine because we had to let martha shine so well well i uh you know i really appreciate that both of you are willing to uh share your stories and uh and be pretty vulnerable about it. I I really appreciate that because, you know, it's like it's really hard to do this sometime. And I, you know, I, I do know that. Um, so, but we have to come to an end. And before we do that, I'd like to know if either of you have anything else you want to add to this program today. Well, I think, I think the military is doing more these days to help dependents with these kinds of transitions. So, you know, I don't know about the CIA, but I don't, I don't want to leave listeners with the impression that today people are at loose ends the way we were. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, back in the day, it was very much, Oh, kids are resilient. (laughs) Move them. Um, And, and all of that kind of stuff. So I just wanted to make that clear. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, kids are going to to have to deal with that anyway. That's something outside the family that you really, the parents don't have control over. But the other piece is that uh, when something's going on outside the family, that's even, a, you know, more responsibility for the parents to show up for the kids inside the family. And I think, you know, I think Laura that uh they're that they're even paying more attention to what's going on inside the family now and offering assistance. Yeah. So because that's what you don't have when you're a brat. Like you don't have that larger community for the most part. Um, you know, the neighbor down the street who's worried about this kid or that kid um, because there's just no continuity. Not only are you moving all the time, but your neighbors are moving all the time when you're in Asia too. Like our school, Taipei American School, used to have about 25, 30% turnover every single year. Um, so so you, you do need 
someone institutionally paying attention um, so that when you have neglectful or, you know, I, I know some, some children uh, of, of abusive parents, when that's going on, there's some institutional oversight, somebody to step yeah. in. And that's important for the kids. So again, thank you, both of you. And uh, I appreciate your willingness to be open and honest about your experience. And thank you. Thank You're you, welcome. Thanks for having us. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Healing Your Family Legacy here on the Experience of the Soul podcast channel. This channel is made possible because of listeners just like you. If you would like to support the channel with your tax-deductible contribution on an ongoing basis or through a one-time gift, head over to experienceofthesoul.com slash support. Healing Your Family Legacy is copyright 2021, Dr. Donna Bevan Lee, all rights reserved. Our theme music is composed by Dave Croft and used with permission. The Experience of the Soul podcast channel is a production of 818 Studios.